Welcome to Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond. We are so glad you could join us today. The Crosstalk podcast is in pursuit of growing in our understanding of the gospel and discovering what it means to transfer to the next generation. And now, here are your hosts, Charles and Daniel. It is indeed good to be back with you today. We are still plotting our way through church history. And this week we want to talk about the history makers as it relates to church history. I know a couple of weeks ago we talked about men, and then just last week we talked about movements. But we want to go from the 18th century, which we've not really moved into yet, um, and talk about men who shaped the church and much of what we know the church to be today. And there are five men we want to take a look at, and I'm sure we could talk about more. But we will. And we will. They'll, they'll get mentioned. But we want to talk about five that we feel really shaped church history from the 18th century and on. And, I, and I'll add this. You and I were talking about this before we came on. That really shaped much of America. If you are an American and you are familiar with American culture and how we operate, much of what you see today was shaped by these men even right. as well. Yep. Um, we're actually moving from Europe to America, as transitioning yes. as we look at these men. Yeah. And there's much – I don't know how much we'll get into before we finish up here in the next few weeks, but um, there's much that goes on in Europe that's important to America later in a negative sense, but we'll we'll talk about that some Yeah, later. and I think it's fair to say we are landing the plane. We're starting to begin to land the plane. Right. We're um, making the approach, yeah. Yeah, and the reason we're doing that, obviously, and you can tell, is we're moving into, obviously, American history and current times in which the church operates and functions. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, the first men we want to talk about would be, and this is more of a combo, would be the Wesleys and the Whitfield. Yeah, the Wesleys and the Whitfield. The Wesleys and then Yeah, yeah two Wesleys, Whitfield. John and Charles. Right. John was the <clears throat> mover and shaker, more of the theologian preacher. Charles was something of a preacher, but he was a hymnist and uh, – he wrote thousands of hymns, and then of course George Whitfield is known for his powerful preaching. So, but they were friends. They they actually so contemporaries. They were. They yeah. they worked together. They were all involved in something called the Holy Club on the campus of of uh, where they attended college or university, and uh, and at that time uh, it it appears that. Uh, John wasn't even a Christian. He was trying his best to find out how to be what he you know, to be a Christian. He was converted later. Some of that influenced by the Moravians, Moravian brethren. But they, what I th- the one thing that characterizes these men to me is what I call uh, warm-hearted evangelism. They were, they were evangelistic. When you and, say warm-hearted, what do you mean by that? Well, they just had a. They had a fervency, a warmth about them for the gospel, uh, just a, a real desire to see the gospel preached and spread. You see it in John because John, of course, uh, from John Wesley came Methodism. And actually, him and his followers were sort of uh, tagged as Methodists. They, that was a derogatory term, by the way. Somewhat. It was, yeah. it was a little bit. Negative. They embraced it though and he, made it their own. <laughs> well, they went from the formalism of Anglicanism and and uh, all the, the both the Wesleys and Whitfield were Anglican. They were ordained in the Anglican Church of England. But what they found was a lot of formalism and not a lot of fervency, not a lot of warmth. And uh, they wanted more. And so they uh, 
they came up in this Anglican environment, but they were also, John Wesley in particular, was was influenced by the pietistic movement, the, the Moravian Brethren. And pietism, uh, we talked about that a little in the past, but basically there was a stronger emphasis on experience over doctrine. Not to the exclusion of doctrine completely, but but the importance of personal experience, and, and Wesley latched onto that. Was that a good thing? Well, it was good, except that it was a bit out of balance. Mm-hmm. I would, that's my characterization. Of Which, it. if you it wasn't, study it was much, good for the church. The church right. and history benefited from the pietistic movement. Which, if you study much about the Wesleys, that will come out. You know. Yeah, yeah, and if if when we talk about Wesleyanism, uh, we're talking about more than a Methodist church. While in, in uh, uh, Wesleyanism uh, was more about experience more about the um, especially the second work of grace and uh, Wesley did teach uh, come to teach a perfectionism mm-hmm. that if if you uh, had the second work of the spirit you mean John Wesley John yeah yeah uh, if you had the second work of grace you could be completely sanctified and a complete sanctification I have a book on my shelf actually on perfectionism by John Wesley and mm. A uh, small little book on perfectionism. So, uh, so there was this this uh, calling people this this uh, uh, second work of grace to look for the second work of grace. So we see that in things like Nazarenes, mm. uh, Wesleyanism is a. Uh, whereas in Methodism, it went more back toward uh, not completely, but back toward formalism, except for guys like like Whitfield. Mm. Whitfield was. Uh, a Calvinistic Methodist, and uh, it's an interesting came, combo. Well, there came to be a rub between John, uh, John Wesley, and George Whitfield, and in fact, it it got pretty heated in their letters and so forth, so that they basically parted company. And uh, so both of them went to the United States. Uh, Wesley went there and preached and taught and set up um, organizations for the promotion of the gospel. This Methodism that that he put together. Whitfield went. And began to preach uh, open air meetings. He, Which, he was sort of a forerunner of modern day um, the camp meetings and right. the tent meetings and the crusades. Um, which we'll get into we later. Will. But later, yeah. um, I think it's interesting that if we put in context of American history, Benjamin Franklin, if I'm not mistaken, would go and listen to Charles or uh, Whitfield. Um, George Whitfield, I almost said Charles Whitfield, getting the two mixed up. George Whitfield, he would go and listen to him right. and be impressed by his ability to speak right. and his in the content of what he spoke and how he could hear him so clearly. Right. Um, so you see and wonder, it's hard to say, but wonder if the teaching, we know that Benjamin Franklin wasn't a very good man in the sense of moral. No. But you can't help but wonder if it influenced him in his thinking as he was a part of forming the U.S. Constitution yeah, and, and, and all the that we know. that come out in some of the quotes yeah. we hear, yeah. I mean, and, and the thing is, if you read or listen to people, you're going to be influenced by them in some way. Yeah. Franklin didn't just go to hear him. They became friends, fast Interesting. friends. Interesting, yeah. Really close friends. And uh, um, another interesting thing that happened, we're going to talk about um, John Jonathan Edwards in a little bit, but uh, Whitfield visited Jonathan Edwards while he was in the United States. And we're talking about pre-Revolution America. Right. Um for the most part, these guys, what they did, they died in the latter part of the of the uh, 18th century. But he went to visit uh, Jonathan Edwards' home. He was single at the time, and mm. when he left, he was so impressed with the home life at Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Edwards' homes that he he uh, 
pretty much decided, you know, I need to get married. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I want to ask, have a family. Right. I want to ask this question because we are talking about church history and we're talking about history makers in light or in context of church history. And, and I think we've touched upon it, but how did they directly affect the church and us as we know it today or even as we saw it form into what it is today? Well, what we know as the Methodist Church today, of course, is, was founded by John right. Wesley. Um, now, the, and the Calvinistic, Calvinism, Arminianism controversy sort of uh, came to a head in them. So and, it's more exacerbated and, by them and, and their relationship and yeah, how their they relationship. Yeah, their relationship. And then Whitfield was a Calvinist. He was, uh, he was also evangelistic. Mm. You know, he didn't see that the two were, uh, were mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, no, they were not mutually exclusive to him. I mean, he preached the gospel. He, that one of the quotes about, uh, Whitfield was, you know, he preached on John three sixteen a number of times. Let's go over and over again. Somebody asked him why he preached on it so much, you know, but he said, you know, he preached on for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And somebody asked him why he preached on it so much, he said, Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son <laughs> that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting right. life. So he he was definitely evangelistic, but he believed that the work of salvation was was a God centered thing through and through. Um, he was not an organizer. He could organize, but that right. was not his thing. Wesley was the organizer. He he could put together the program and the, the the means to get the gospel out. Where did Charles fit in all of this? Charles was a – you don't hear his name as much. Right. He was probably, a, a, in, in my mind, being of my persuasion, a better theologian than his brother John. Yeah. You read his – if you yeah. read his, his hymns. hymns – tell that. If you read his yeah. hymns, you see it, yeah. Um, uh, and he wrote thousands of hymns, so he was pretty busy. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. he, and they and they're good, solid, theologically strong. He was he's not considered the father of modern hymnody, but he certainly had a strong influence on modern hymnody, and uh, and much of what we can still sing today in churches yeah. is, is yep. of him. Yeah, yeah sure, sure enough. He, uh, um, so so he was he was very involved in the Holy Club, and he was involved with his brother, but she, but he was a more in a back seat. He was not. Inactive, he just wasn't as out in the forefront. Whitfield uh, preached to the masses. He could preach to a crowd of twenty-five thousand, unaided by any kind of uh, any kind of amplification, of course, because they didn't have it then. And so there were reports that he could be heard from a mile away. His mm. voice was so loud and resonant. There was got to um, be a line between fact and um, almost legend. <laughs> yeah, and we don't know all that, right, but right. he was quite the emotional preacher. He he did things. He expressed himself in his preaching in ways that had never been done before. You know, people were used to a man sitting behind, standing behind a lectern, reading a manuscript. And, and boring and dry. And, yeah, and that's what they were used to. Whitfield changed all that. And it didn't all change at once, but right. he introduced a new way. Would you say that maybe he is the father of more passionate, engaged preaching? Well, he certainly had an influence in that direction. Um, so there's some other influences we'll see in our next podcast that mm-hmm. uh, had some influence in that too. But yes, he certainly had a lot of influence in that. So that's that's pretty much um, – um, they. they uh, Whitfield is known as a catalyst for the first Great Awakening, mm. uh, and we'll see that Jonathan Edwards had some a lot to do with that too. But but he was certainly a catalyst yeah. for that Great Awakening that that basically led up to the Revolution and had a lot to do with preparing the United States for what was then the colonies for what would be a trying time during the Revolution. Mm.
So we're talking about the Wesleys and then obviously uh, George Whitfield. Um, the next person on our list here is William Wilberforce, which is more um, British history, United Kingdom history, but has a direct effect upon what we would say across the pond. <laughs> right. You know, and and also you think about the freeing of slaves and how we moved on from that or began the process of moving on. It was a very long process. Um, how does he affect or how does he fit within the church history spectrum? Well, he was um, – the Wesleys and Whitfield pretty much occupied the, the 18th century. Uh, Wilberforce would have been born about the middle of that. So uh, – and he lived to, until 1833. So he, he crossed the 18th and 19th centuries. He was uh, not – he was uh, not – he had a strict upbringing and didn't respond well to it until he was 26 at which time he was converted and his life was completely changed. I think if there's a characteristic we could give to William Wilberforce, it would be perseverance, endurance. Because mm. he was not healthy. No, he he had health problems all of his life. He And we see that endurance lived out in the public square. Here's a man who was right in the public square. He was a, a member of parliament for several years. He was, he was, many of those years, he was an independent member of parliament. And he took on sort of a one, he was challenged and uh, I can't remember the names of the fellows right now, but he was challenged to take on the slave trade, and he took it to heart. If you're a Christian, if you believe in the dignity of man, the worth of the soul, the worth of humans, you know, he was, and he, he took it to heart, and it basically changed his life, and it changed the trajectory of his whole career, so that his career was taken with this battle against the slave trade. And the people that he he put around him were what I would call kind of a ragtag bunch of people that helped him in this process um it's interesting if you want to read a little bit more about him obviously there's biographies have been written about him but one of the things that first introduced me to william wilberforce was a series that john piper does calls the roots of endurance um it's actually called the swans are not silent series Mm -hmm. um and so basically he delves into william wilberforce and kind of his conviction and and what he was and who he did and what caused him to endure as he did, because he knew so much pain physically and also professionally. Um, yeah, he, he continued, in spite of his illness, Yeah, he wouldn't, sometimes he had to go to bed, but he wouldn't yeah. quit. He, yeah. he if you want to watch a good dramatization of it, Amazing Grace, the yeah, film Amazing is Grace good. is a, is a good it's, one. Um, yeah, it, 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 it is. It it's move. worth watching, yeah, yeah, and probably ought to be watched yeah. to, to get, it could be a good introduction to William Wilberforce. Yeah. He, uh, uh People might recognize the name John Newton, mm-hmm. who wrote Amazing Grace and a number of other hymns. He was a, a rector, uh, and he had a strong influence on William Wilberforce. He was quite the encourager and um, sort of buttresser of well, Wilberforce. And the reason for that is because John Newton was a slave trader himself. Yeah, he, well, so, he was actually involved in the slave yeah, trade. He was on yeah. shipwreck. He was when a part he was, of that yeah, whole industry. Yeah. And so he was converted from that. And so to have that relationship with William Wilberforce and to know to be one of those yeah. and been redeemed right. out of that and to encourage him. And John you, Newton comes out in that movie, by he the does. way. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good how they bring yeah. in the whole title of Amazing Grace and that whole aspect. But, but as far as the church, how would you say that affected William Wilberforce? Well, I think it drew some lines for the church both in, uh, in the um, – 
UK and in the United States because the church was divided over slavery mm. in uh, America. And as the Civil War approached, as the middle of the 18th, as it was for a while, as the middle of the nineteenth century approached, you had a real problem with, with uh, I mean, what the Southern Baptist Convention was formed because slave slave owners would not be appointed by the Triennial Convention, mm. and uh, uh, so the Southern Baptist Convention was formed, and I mean, so Southern Baptist Convention has roots in pro slavery, right? You know? Yeah. Um, thank the Lord that's right. long past, and thank the Lord it didn't stay that way, but but. Uh, Wilberforce helped to draw some lines, some real, real st- straight mm. lines for on both sides of the Atlantic, and uh, um, I mean there were there were churches that would not ordain slave holders, or I mean it, you know it became right. quite uh, divisive. So he brought he the helped issue to, draw to the forefront. Lines. He did. He helped to draw those Made lines. Made people aware. You know, it's interesting. In the film, he brings – and I'd have to look and see the historical accuracy, and I believe this did happen. But he would he would brought a bunch of parliamentarians onto a ship, a slave trade ship. He put, yeah. he put together this kind of fancy meal, whatever they were going to have. And obviously the smell on the ship and, mm-hmm. and everything was just right. atrocious and kind of painted this picture. So I think he really began to make people aware – of the problem, and least of all, the church now has seen it. It's in their mind, and this is what has to happen. Wilberforce felt the impact of the slave trade. He, it's interesting here to go along with this, uh, the roots of endurance and this whole idea of perseverance. You know, he fought for this bill for this for some law to be passed, and the uh, Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 passed three days mm. after he died. Mm. So, yeah, it's a little. That's kind of a goosebump story. But yeah. Similar. So moving on here, last person we want to deal with, and we're purposely not going to pre-give all of the people because we want you to listen next week as we talk right. about the other two people because we're right. only going to deal with three today. But the next person we want to deal with is Jonathan Edwards, and I think it is important to say that at one point, and I think that's less so now, but at one point Jonathan Edwards was considered the greatest theologian America ever not the, not just theologian but philosopher that yeah. America ever had yeah. and actually we didn't really talk about too many guys that were great philosophers right when it came to Americans right yeah. and he was it he was it and his thinking affected America so much but we're talking about church history not necessarily American history even though that's the period in which we're in how did he affect the church and form the history that we know now uh, he, by the way, he was born the same year as John Wesley. Interesting. Seventeen oh three, both across the Atlantic from each other. Uh-huh. Uh, he, uh, um, I, I like to say that what what is significant about his life and ministry was what I call fervent intellect. Hmm. He was an intellectual, but he was not just an intellectual. He was passionately intellectual. <laughs> he was. He was a fervent intellectual. He. He was. Uh, he knew Whitfield, as we said. Whitfield was in his home. Um, he was pastor of a congregational church. He did. He was a Pado Baptist, which means he believed in infant baptism. 
one of the things he really pushed was convert, converted membership. That caused a lot of tension in his church. I can't imagine why. <laughs> well, you know, as is as tends to happen if we don't if we're not proactive, people will become a part of the church who aren't converted. They just know the stuff. You know? Maybe just real quickly explain to our listeners what do we mean by converted membership. I know that may sound simple in the sense of it, we should know, but I still think there's a tendency not to really push for that well, or in the way we think it should be. Some of us might assume, well, yeah, aren't all people who are members of a church converted? Aren't mm-hmm. they believers? But no, I mean, actually, I think there's still a number of people that would listen to this podcast are part of churches in which people have just kind of been in the church right. and the emphasis upon their genuine conversion was not made. And that's been a recent development in Reformed circles, converted membership, meaning that people whose names are on the roll show evidence that they are genuinely converted so that you don't have church role, churches in which you have uh, 500 members and you have 80 people attending. Right. And everybody's wondering, where's the rest of the people? Well, some have died, of course, and some have moved, of course. But that means we're not keeping up with our membership. This whole idea of converted membership is that we know who our members are and we know what their standing is with Christ. And we simply mean by that is that when they're coming in, you go through a process by just asking, what do you think about the gospel and how has the gospel affected impacted you? Impacted your life. Yeah. yeah that's, Tell that's me all, that's what how we're you doing. were converted. <laughs> And we don't mean that everybody has the same exact right. pat answer. I don't have the same answer some people do. Or the I same experience in yeah. the sense of like, you know, the the age old, you know, I was walking the wrong way and all of a sudden I had to do a turn about yep. face. Yep. Maybe you grew up in a Christian church and yeah. became Well, I was going to such such church and yeah. then I went to that at church and right. it was a lot better church. No, yeah, it's a lot yeah. more to it than that. So so he he preached that and really worked for that and that created some problems for him. He uh, he delivered most of us probably are aware if we have any awareness of of um church history. And Jonathan Edwards, we know that he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's been parodied a great right. deal. But that and he and his ministry and, and of, of the Word and that sermon sort of was a, an unofficial kickoff to the Great Awakening, the you know, first Great Awakening. I'm reading a book right now, Desiring God by John Piper. And, of course, anyone who knows John Piper well knows that Jonathan Edwards is kind of his hero. Yeah, um, that's right. His, in fact, he's in one of those roots of endurance that I mentioned yeah, yeah. Uh, about William Wilberforce, or he is one of the roots of endurance uh, subjects. And he always is quoting him, but he really also pushed this idea that ultimate pleasure is in God. Yeah. And this idea, which is what Piper talks about, Christian hedonism, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he didn't use those words, but his whole thing of like, we find ultimate pleasure in God by loving others and seeing them happy, and we are therefore happy, you know, those type yeah. of things. And so it's interesting how even today, you look at John Piper, who is a well-known theologian, preacher, teacher, pastor, former pastor, yeah. yeah, was affected by this guy, yeah, and exactly. his writings are affected yep. by this guy, and we he's standing upon the sh- very broad shoulders of Jonathan Edwards. Well, uh, uh, Along with that is the as you see the providence of God and the timing of him preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is a really confrontational gospel message, right. warning people of the doom that is to come. He preached that as Whitfield was touring the colonies, the thirteen colonies. Interesting. So you see God working there. We'll talk some more when we talk about movements later, but revival 
is a work of the Spirit of God, mm. and it's the timing of it, how that's a work of God, and right. the providence, providence involved in that. And you see that in Whitfield and Edwards. Edwards wrote a book called The End for Which God Created Man, or Created the World. His big thing was, all for the glory of God. Mm. We are here for the glory of God. Sounds kind of We've, familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, John really. Piper yeah. talks about that. <laughs> and then he also published uh, A Life of David Brainerd, mm. and that's been an effective book in our generation. And then uh, there's a book on the 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 Great Awakening called Religious Affections, in which he explains some of the excesses, emotional excesses of the Great Awakening, but the importance of affections and how the affections are stirred and affected by the Spirit of God and the Word of God in a revival context. So that's some of the stuff that, that we still are are really uh, benefiting from today. Oh, absolutely. And I think our theologians, as we've already mentioned, have benefited from. And if anybody in seminary, a good, solid seminary, is probably going to start study Jonathan Edwards. Right. Just to finish him off, mm-hmm. he, he, he was made – he was installed as the president of Princeton – and the Princeton College, wow, I think incredible. it was that time. He died just after that. He he took an inoculation. <laughs> that's funny. Right. He took a smallpox inoculation, and it it he got ill and died. So uh, and and if just as a historical note, he was the grandfather of our third vice president, hmm. Aaron Burr. So and he had some other other great leaders that came out of his. Out yeah. of his line, his effect so is more than we probably have time to even deal with him. We one do. Small and he's a, brief that'd be a, uh, Ian Murray. If people want to read a, an excellent uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, get Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards. It's awesome. really good. Well, this has been good, and we're going to finish next week. We've got two more we want to deal with, so join us next week to find out who those two people are. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone, so much for joining us today. You can always visit us on the web at crosstalkpodcast.org. Crosstalk is produced by Vision for Living Ministries, a nonprofit organization. This podcast is a free resource, but you can support us financially through our website. For more information on Vision for Living Ministries, visit our website at visionforliving.org, where you will find more great resources. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vision for Living or on Twitter, at V4L. We also love to hear from our listeners. You can email us anytime at info at visionforliving.org. Be sure to join us next week on Crosstalk, the gospel for today and beyond. Mm -hmm.